Born in the former Soviet Union before the fall of communism, Alexander Kwasov has been closely watching the daily developments of Russia's invasion of neighboring Ukraine. It has impacted him both personally and professionally in his role as adjunct professor within the College of Humanities and Sciences. His educational journey established expertise in cross-cultural conflict resolution, peace psychology, and global education. As Russia's invasion leads newscasts internationally and threatens to reshape global relations, he regularly incorporates in-depth discussions with a focus on contemporary Russia into his lectures. He was also the lead expert in a recent Roxborough House roundtable discussion about the situation. I'm Brian Hickey, a member of the university's communications team. For this episode of the university's Nexus podcast, I recently sat down with Alexander to take a higher level look at what's happening. Among many topics discussed were the root causes of the invasion, a dynamic that he refers to as Putinism, how he expects the situation to impact people both across the globe and in the Philadelphia region, and the importance of breaking through propaganda to connect with Russians. Before we get into all that, let's hear about Alexander's upbringing. My name is Alexander Kwasov. I am an adjunct professor here since 2008. I teach currently the global issues courses and global politics courses. I have taught a number of other courses, U.S. history, pop culture, European history, contemporary Europe, Italian, Russian. I got to experience what would be the idyllic Soviet childhood, the tail end of the Soviet Union. My formative years, I grew up in the Soviet system of education, Soviet social norms, Soviet cultural institutions. And I say it's an idyllic Soviet childhood. It doesn't mean that it's idyllic, but for the Soviet Union, it was pretty good. Sort of the good things about it when I was a child, before it started to fall apart. I got to experience what Soviets were for their people to experience. This multiculturalism, integration of everyone into the society, being one, no ethnicity, no race. I also know that I occupied a privileged position because I was ethnically Russian. And no matter what I thought, what it appeared to be in my mind, this is why I thought talking, there's definitely issues of discrimination, of dominance of the Russian culture, of the Russian language, of the Russian society. If you were not Russian from Russia, from Moscow, you were considered to be second-class citizen. The utopia existed in theory, and it existed in my childhood, but as I grew older, I started to realize that it was really utopia. It didn't really work, and that's one of the reasons why it fell apart. How does that background impact the lessons that you teach here at Jefferson? One of my favorite topics I teach is colonialism. We deconstruct the colonial mindset of the colonizers. We look at British colonialism in India, French colonialism in Africa. I oftentimes say, and this is not my words, any project that has at its heart any kind of social engineering, if it starts with imprisoning the very subject of that social engineering, is always going to fail, which is why colonialism failed. I would say Soviet Union in part fell apart because it was based on similar institutions where one people dominated over everybody else for centuries. And even in the Soviet Union, continued to dominate, regardless of the rhetoric, the theory behind the equality of the French, liberté, égalité, fraternité. It's really a socialist communist saying, goes right back to Marx, what Soviets wanted to apply to their people, they only applied in theory and really never applied to anyone because Soviet Union from the beginning was very totalitarian, therefore very hierarchic, therefore very centralized around a certain class of people. What drove Putin to invade Ukraine? I think he's, he simply wanted to show that he can do it, because he can, because he's so powerful, because he's an absolute ruler, because he simply can go there and do it. And it's his own backyard in his mind. 
It's different when you go to Syria, but even there, Russians and he perceived the Syrian campaign in support of President Assad there as a, as a great success and an American failure. So I think drunk from that success, he saw Ukraine as a very easy target. He just got tired of listening to it and he just said, do it now. I was listening to a really interesting program. The scholar that was being interviewed, she said, I studied Putin and I noticed that he likes to mark special occasions in some gruesome, grotesque, violent ways. On one of his birthdays, Georgia was invaded. On another birthday, Anna Politovskaya, an independent journalist, was assassinated. Birthdays or important events in his mind for the country, he likes to mark in these really gruesome, violent ways. I think he wanted to mark the annexation and repossession of Crimea, which would have been the 18th of March, with a victory parade in Ukraine, in Kiev. And I think that deadline was pushed back now to May the 9th, which is the Russian World War II victory parade. If he can parade in Kiev, he has accomplished what he wanted. I think now it's the next big goal for him. Is there anything more to it than that? There's a wonderful journalist, film director, commentator. His name is Alexander Mirzorov. He says he simply got bored with his place. And if you look at what Putin has been doing, one of his absolute favorite things to do, other than going to hunt or probably buy a new watch for 20 to 30,000 euros or buy another yacht, he was absolutely enamored with being around military toys. New tank came out. You could see him just gleaning next to it. The new plane came out. The stealth fighter. Oh my God. Wow. He's got new supersonic rockets, military toys. He just wanted to use them. And he wanted to use them nearby. That's something that was said by Mitzorov. I don't buy it. I think it was more, if he went there, it was more a demonstration of force, of power. Because he can. Would he consider what has happened so far to be a success? No matter what happens at this point, whether Russia takes Kiev, whether Russia gains any more ground in Ukraine, I don't think it matters. I think Russia has already succeeded. The whole point of pouring the troops in there was to get as far as you can into Ukraine so you can hold both positions. Catherine the Great, the only way for me to protect the borders is to extend them. And the only way to have peace at the center is to have war on the periphery. Exactly what's happening. If he can have an unstable country, part of which is under his control, with puppet leaders controlling those territories, and if he can cut Ukraine off the Black Sea completely, and maybe divide it even further, then he has succeeded greatly. He destabilized it. He showed the world that he can take a modern European state and do what he wants with it, and then control a part of it and call it his own. Russia has already succeeded because it is in Ukraine. It's holding positions, and it's advancing. It doesn't need to parade there on May 9th. He has accomplished a big part of his mission there, which is why he's so smug and confident. And at least on the surface, his inner circle don't show any cracks and they support him all the way. If they've already succeeded, is there a chance that they will pull back? I don't think Russia is leaving Ukraine anytime soon. If Russia leaves Ukraine, it would show a great weakness and a great failure of Putin. It would show the world that he couldn't do it. He has his limits. He's failed miserably. Leaving Ukraine is not a part of the plan. Whatever negotiations are taking place there, they're not going to be successful. Talk to me about the concept of Putinism. It seems as if his quote-unquote cult of personality 
has left many Russians supporting his every move. You can trace the origins of Putinism in the early years of Putin's presidency, when one of the first things they did as a group of people in power was gain control of private media. Through, through force or through or finding ways to sue the owners or to imprison the owners, they basically took all of the major television channels, newspapers, any other sources radio stations of information that was really independent in the 90s compared to what it used to be in the Soviet Union and what it is now, and they gained control of that. Just like for any totalitarian regime, think George Orwell 1984, who controls the information, who controls the narrative, who controls the discourse, that person controls not just the ideas, but also, uh, I love this, the very language. And if you can control that, then if people don't even have the words to express certain things, then they essentially are a lot more easily controlled. So media was the foundation. Putinism. That led into educational institutions, that led into cultural institutions, that led into religious institutions. Obviously, politically and legalistically, Putinism has increased its presence throughout the time in a variety of ways. Some people don't think that Putinism exists. Do you, Professor Kwasov? I do. I see. I've experienced it. When I look at Russia today, it's clear to me that Putinism does exist. Which is why, if you remove Putin from power, it will continue. It is not something that will end with him, though it does rest very much on his cult of personality. Nevertheless, if Putin goes away, that system will move on. It will continue. It may evolve. It may fall apart at some point, but it won't end immediately. That's why if Putin is gone tomorrow, for whatever reason, the Russian invasion will not stop. Russia will continue on the same course for quite some time. Too many people are tied into the system in complete ways. What do you mean by that? Start with ideology. Do you know what the approval rate of Russia's quote-unquote special operation in Ukraine and by default the approval rating of Putin is today? 89% of Russians approve of him and his actions and therefore by default of what's happening in Ukraine. I would not be surprised if a good chunk of those 89% are people under 20 years old. Are they fully informed is a different question. But the fact that approval is so high is one of the direct results of Putinism and its strength inside the society within the people. We have to think about Putinism as something that will stay for a while, and we need to learn to live with it. In your estimation, what was the goal of the invasion? Russia really thought of itself as the Third Rome. When the Roman Empire fell, Russians took on the mantle of the Eastern Christian world. They were essentially the next messiah, the next savior, the next ones to affect the course of history the way they wanted to, but also in their mind, also for the better. This sort of messianic, if you will, perspective on how things are in the world is kind of similar to the American Manifest Destiny. It's rooted in Russian psyche in many ways, which is why when you're told you're the greatest and it is emphasized over and over and over again through propaganda, when alternative news sources or perspectives or any criticisms are simply absent, you begin to believe you are the one. You are exceptional. And that's one of the reasons why Putin's propaganda is so successful. Because he really does exude and insist on Russian ex exceptionality. And this sort of, we're going to resist the evil and we're the good and we bring the good with us. Historically, the myth of the Russian goodness was dominant. Russians were always the good guys. It was the Germans. It was the Nazis. It was the fascists in Italy, if you will. They were the bad guys. We were the saviors. We brought the goodness with us. We saved the world from the Nazis. We can do no wrong. We're not evil. This is what Russians believe. They believe it now, which is why in their minds, 
it would be shocking to even think about the atrocities that are taking place in Ukraine, especially when they don't have an alternative piece of news that's coming into their daily rations of information. And what they hear on multiple levels in media, they see only one type of narrative. They don't see the alternative. And it's really hard for them to wrap their mind around the fact that only thousands of civilians have been killed in Ukraine in the last month alone. There must be some Russians who are able to wade through propaganda and get accurate information, though, no? Not everyone is completely disconnected from reality in Russia. It's people who are independent thinkers, people who are educated, people who haven't necessarily lived abroad but traveled and seen the world, people who may, may be internet savvy, meaning they, they have VPNs, they get the news from outside of Russia. They've historically followed certain bloggers. Currently, they're still available through YouTube, but I'm pretty certain YouTube will get shut down or get some sort of limited access or some sort of firewall that no one will be able to jump over. This is the only way to control the reality that has been constructed in Russia at the moment. It is by preventing, first of all, any information that is the opposite of what the official line is seeping into the society. Should we take anything Putin says at face value? Someone asked the question on CNN the other day, can Russia be trusted? The answer is no. I don't think right now, with current leadership, Russia can be trusted. It is... One of the greatest skills that the Leningrad KGB school teaches, or used to teach, and now FSB school teaches its graduates, and one of them is Putin. It is being able to lie convincingly. Never, ever does he say anything that is truthful. Anything he says is a lie. It is an attempt at manipulating and covering the truth, and very skillfully he does that. It's just how they think. This is their identity. And that's something we need to think about. Understanding that, who they are, what they do, and why they do it, is a baseline. Anyone who has reached that height, that level of power, that level of control, is also extremely insecure. That's why his fear of the precipitous collapse, descent, fall, so big that he will do anything to prevent it. The moment this weakness is displayed and Russia pulls out of Ukraine will mark the clear beginning of the end for Putin, a very violent end that he will be. He wants to avoid that by all means, which is why he's not going to stay in power for all that long. Eventually, he'll have to give up some ground. That method to his madness type approach will give way to actual madness. How exactly would that manifest itself? He'll become even more insecure. And the more insecure and the more he's feeling himself not betrayed, but maybe under pressure, the more he's afraid for his own well-being, I think the more is the likelihood of him employing some extreme measures. Apparently, U.S. intelligence thinks there's a realistic possibility of Russia using chemical weapons in Ukraine. And the more Russia is bogged down, assuming that he's feeling insecure for whatever reason, he may employ these extreme measures. He seems angry and unpredictable, and he doesn't exude charisma anytime you are around him. He projects fear. People are afraid of being around him, and it's so bad that even in public, you can sense it. Let's shift into what this situation will mean both globally and in our region. What should people who live in and around Philadelphia be concerned about? We should all be worried about millions of people who have been displaced, who will continue to be displaced. There's something like three and a half, four million people that were displaced, were killed. Many more are not refugees, but are not able to become displaced, just hiding for their lives. That's the first thing we need to how do we stop those people from being injured, from being killed, obviously from suffering? 100,000 refugees is what the U.S. has taken in from Ukraine. 100,000. They will come pretty certain. 
to the East Coast. They will come to Philadelphia. They will. Inevitably. We have a huge Russian-speaking community, an enormous Ukrainian community. I used to live right next to the original sort of place of where Ukrainians lived in Northern Liberties. Northeast Philadelphia, I don't know how many thousand of Ukrainians there are. Many more will come. They'll bring with them, obviously, everything that enriches the society, but they will also bring with them post-traumatic stress, everything that comes with being victims of war. Anything that comes with refugees coming is going to come here to us. And it's a good thing that they're coming, because if they're not coming, then they're either suffering or dead. The effects on the world, obviously, we're already experiencing them. Price of commodities, price of equipment. Russia and Ukraine together export more grain than any other part of the world. And a lot of that grain is going to the developing world. That grain that is no longer going to be available. We could see the effects of starvation in parts of Africa, Asia, parts of the world that actually import that product. We may see it here as well. We'll be short of that. Certain types of metals that find their ways into smartphones to produce certain chips will be short on that. So the price for that and anything that it comes with is probably going to go up. We're talking about across-the-board inflation that is being triggered. By the way, it's probably going to get worse with gas prices for a number of reasons. But I think comes April 1st, Russian oil exports are going to be banned in the U.S. People are saying that is going to affect the price of oil in the world between 3 to 6%, which is a lot of money. Economic effects of this, obviously, will trickle down along these lines. Anything that you can think of that in a globally integrated economy was being produced in Ukraine or in Russia is no longer going to find its way into the global economy for whatever reasons. Russia sanctions Ukraine because it's destroyed. We're going to be short of, and that is going to cause economic hardships because the prices are going to go up. And people are going to feel it in their pockets. Their wallets. Obviously, what, what's happening now also has a direct impact on the geopolitical situation in the world. The map of the world has been redrawn. Nobody thought it would happen, but it happened. It's happening now. It will change again. Possibly, if this precipitates the collapse of Putin's regime, it will precipitate the collapse of Russia as well. Russia may break up into smaller states. Federal Russia is possible, and that may be what Russia will end up with. But that will cause a great deal of instability and suffering as well. Probably more refugees, more violence, more potential conflicts spilling over the borders of Russia into the former Soviet states and beyond. If the opposite happens and Putin succeeds, and has a march in Kiev, then potentially other countries are under threat of a similar attack. There's been talk about Baltic states, though they are members of NATO. There's Moldova, a country that is not a member of NATO. There's again Georgia that was invaded and may again be invaded. We're talking about the flexing of muscles in parts of the world of the former Soviet sphere of influence that are independent of Russia and wants to move in the European direction. They will most likely suffer. I hate to go here, but what are the prospects of nuclear war? We really need to fear the ultimate extreme end to this thing, which is the use of weapons of mass destruction that are not just directed at Ukraine by Russia, but also are directed at Russia and from outside of Ukraine, the West, in the West, middle of the Atlantic Ocean, wherever that missile is going to be shot. I've been stressing this in my own classes for the last, I want to say, 10 years, maybe even 12 years. We've never been this close to the risk of nuclear war than we are today, than we have been since Putin's rise to power, since the advent of Putinism, since the direction in which Russia started going under Putin, certainly since he regained power in 2012. We should really be taking this seriously. We should really be afraid of nuclear war. And what that means is that we need to understand where he's coming from when he threatens. You'll never see the kind of 
wrath I will unleash on you if you try to meddle in my affairs. We've never had a major power use such loose language with regard to nuclear weapons. We've never had a leader ever, never in the Soviet Union, who has amassed so much absolute power where he can't press the button that easily. If he imposes a draft in Russia, there's probably going to be some sort of military curfew. And if there's a military curfew, that essentially makes his powers literally absolute. So he can do anything. He can scrap the constitution and have the parliament draft a new one. Or he can add another term. He can pretty much do anything. I've heard Russia's claims that they are fighting back against Nazis in Ukraine. This is obviously a very heavy claim. Can you break that down for us? There are no Nazis in Ukraine. Are there extreme radical groups that have elements of Nazi ideology amongst them? Yes, they are radical nationalists. And a country like Ukraine needs to have groups like that when it has a neighbor like Russia. A country that recently gained its independence from a state that is unwilling to recognize it and multiple times meddled in its affairs, invaded it, took its territory, and now invaded it again and wants to erase it from the face of the earth they insist that they are denazifying Ukraine. That is a very inaccurate statement. It's just not realistic that it's in the government of Ukraine to say that they're Nazis and we're denazifying this country. Based on the latest stats, the largest body of people who favor neo-Nazis, the largest number of people who are neo-Nazis in their ways, who behave like neo-Nazis, who affiliate themselves with Nazi or Nazi ideology, are actually in Russia. Russia has more neo-Nazi groups than any other country in the world. If we want to talk about Nazism, if we want to talk about fascism, we don't really need to talk about any other place than Russia. Place that presumably defeated Nazism, place that fought against Hitler, place that lost millions of people in World War II, is a place that under Putinism reflects and resembles everything that Nazis have ever stood for. From controlling the news, from controlling education, society, culture, from creating the laws that essentially aim at centralizing the power and taking any free agency out of the society for doing everything it can to essentially control the world, control its own reality and the world, essentially, along the ideals that it holds. And those ideals, if you look at it, if you look at things that have been happening in Russia, look like Nazi Germany. This is some serious stuff. What was Hitler before he became Hitler? He could never join the military, really, for whatever reasons. So he was just this sort of miserable, angry, failed, unwanted artist. Do you know what Putin was before he became Putin? When Hitler was painting, Putin was killing people. Just think about that. Hitler spent a lot of time getting to the point where he became Hitler and learning to do what Putin already knew before he became Putin. People need to understand that people in power in Russia today are a group of ex-KGB trained to essentially kill, to achieve their goals. This is the leadership of Russia today. These are the people that are a lot more dangerous than Hitler for another reason. Hitler did not have nuclear weapons. People who are trained to kill, people who will do anything to survive, people whose mindset reflects, here's us, and this is our way, and if it's not our way, there's no highway there, you're dead. We have a group of people who were taught to kill to do their job, who have nuclear arsenal of chemical weapons, of biological weapons, who use them freely around the world to kill off their opponents, people who speak against them, people who may make them vulnerable anyway, they are not going to think twice about making a choice to press the red button. And certainly this one person won't think about it twice if they think that they're threatened. And that's exactly what his press secretary, Dmitry Peskov, said. If we feel that our existence is threatened, we press the button. This is what he said in an interview 
to CNN. This is serious, and we need to really think about it, and we need to plan our actions accordingly. Let's plan for the worst-case scenario. We should have done that a long time ago. We should have done that probably around 2008, when he stepped down, and for four years, he made sure that as prime minister, he created the kind of body of laws and the kinds of foundations in the Russian parliament that would now allow for him to create the kind of society and to cultivate this ideology of Putinism that essentially allows for him to do anything he wants in politics. Well, that is all very concerning. How can we connect with Russians to help them see their leaders may not have their best interests in mind? That's the biggest other thing we need to think about. How do we get to the average Russians? How do we get in their psyche, in their mind? We've lost the generation that was born in 2000. They're the generation of Russians who are under Putinism. They're the generation of Russians who only see one person in power their entire life. That generation, the vast majority of them, I feel like will not change. But people who came before them, people who are coming after them, they need to be tapped into. They need to be given different ideas from what they're given so that they can see things from a critical perspective. We need to do that. That's our mission. Because until they take it to the streets, until they're no longer 89%, but let's say 10%, or even 50%, we're not getting really productive. And they're the ones that, that, that are lied to the most. They are the main target, the main audience for the lies disseminated by the Kremlin. And that's who we need to target with alternative information, a different version of reality, or simply call it the truth. To learn more about this and other Jefferson stories, please visit jefferson.edu backslash the nexus. You may also enjoy a Jefferson Health podcast episode featuring a Ukrainian cardiologist who just returned from providing medical aid to Ukrainian refugees. Access the Health Nexus podcast on any of your favorite podcast players or visit thehealthnexus.org. Today's interview was conducted by Brian Hickey with production support from Dan Bernstein. Thank you for listening.